0: This evening we're going to begin a new book, the book of Joshua. It's the sixth book in your Old Testament, if you'd like to turn to chapter one. As you're turning there, by entering into Joshua, we are entering into a new section of the scriptures. Usually by Christian reckoning, we start with the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, And then we have the history of Israel, Joshua through Nehemiah. Then we have uh, the wisdom literature in the Psalms, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then we have the prophets. But by Jewish reckoning, uh, they think of the Bible in three major sections. In fact, you often find these sections articulated in the New Testament by Jesus or by the disciples as being the law, the prophets and the writings. And so with Joshua from a Jewish perspective we enter into the first half of the prophets known as the former prophets. That's Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. And then there's the latter prophets beginning with Isaiah, moving through most of the prophets, and then finally the writings, which includes not only books like Psalms and Proverbs, but also Ezra, Nehemiah, First and Second Chronicles, the book of Daniel. Um, as we move through the Bible here, we're actually going to follow that Jewish order. It's a little bit different than if we just read our Old Testaments beginning to end and it allows us to do um, some really interesting things as we study the Bible together. It also helps us to not have to do 1st and 2nd Kings and then start over in 1st and 2nd Chronicles uh, and do the same thing again, uh, which will be helpful. Um, But with Joshua, we open on something new, but it very much builds uh, builds on where we've been. In fact... Just like the second, third, fourth, and fifth book of your Old Testament, in the Hebrew, chapter 1, verse 1 of Joshua opens literally with the word and. Okay. We should read this book in continuity uh, with the Torah. In fact, as we'll see in just a second, Joshua's entire ministry is built on the back of uh, obeying, the words recorded in the Torah, on meditating on it, that's going to be the secret of his success. But we can see that continuity even in verse 1. Read it with me. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses's assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all the people into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. And so we're introduced here to the reality of Moses' death, which is what closes out the book of Deuteronomy. uh, And God begins to speak directly to Joshua and commission him to enter into this land that's been promised to Israel. It refers here to Moses as the servant of the Lord. And then it refers to Joshua as the assistant of Moses. Servant and assistant, those aren't the same Terms In fact, the name Servant of the Lord is such a high title that it's only given to Joshua once and not until his death in Joshua 24. For the rest of the book, he's just going to be Joshua, the son of Nun. Okay. Um, but nonetheless, we can see here that he's stepping into the shoes of Moses, continuing the work that began before him. When it mentions here that Joshua is Moses' assistant, we can trace that back through the pages of the law and we discover um, that he served with Moses in many different capacities. Uh, It was Joshua who was the general on the front lines while Moses was praying for the battle uh, back in the book of Exodus. It's Joshua who uh, maintained watch over the tabernacle. It's Joshua, who was operating under Moses' authority and was there, Joshua was one of the two spies sent out of the twelve who came back with a positive report. In fact, that helps us to nail down an important detail in understanding this book. For some reason, we have a tendency to think of Joshua as a young man. Uh, But he is one of two people of the original generation of Israel Uh, to survive the wilderness experience. Because of their disbelief and rebellion and unwillingness to enter the land back in Numbers 13, all of the Israelite nation over the age of 20 perishes in the wilderness. The only exceptions being Joshua and Caleb. And so we know then that at that time he was at least 20 years old, And so when we add a 40-year wilderness journey, as we open to the first verses of the book of Joshua, we're talking about a 60-year-old man. By the time the book ends, he will die at the age of 110, okay? And so we have at least 50 years worth of time covered in the span of Joshua. But it begins with this call to stand up, to cross the Jordan and enter into the land that I'm giving them to the people of Israel. Now notice what it says in verse 3. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. Now notice two things there. First, God makes clear that he's giving them the land. It's put in uh, in the full active work of God. But he also says that he's giving to them every place where their foot will tread. There's this correlation in the book of Joshua between the sovereign gift of God and the active work of God's people. And so God is going to go before them, fight for them, fight their battles, and yet they still have to pick up the sword and fight. It reminds me of something similar we see in Abraham when uh, Abraham is in a disagreement with Lot. And because of that, they separate ways. And Abraham says, Lot, you pick a direction, you go in it, you take your people, and I'll go in the opposite direction. He defers from his rights as the primary patriarch. He lays aside the fact that this entire journey they're on, the entire land that they're come to, is the land that's promised not to Lot's descendants, but to Abraham's. And so God speaks to him in that place, and he says, "Climb up on this hill, look to the north, look to the south, look to the east, to the west, all the land that you see I am giving you." But as you read the rest of Abraham's story, what do you find him doing? You find him walking out the depths of that land, always migratory, getting to know and experience tangibly the promise of God for himself. I've always connected the book of Joshua with the book of Ephesians. I don't know why. But in Ephesians chapter 1, God tells us that we, in Jesus Christ, have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's already ours. It's been given to us. It's fully made available, the entire uh, wealth and riches of all that Jesus deserves in his obedience and even in the reality of his godhood. It's made available to us, but as you read the book of Ephesians, you recognize that it's all ours, but we have to enter into it. We have to walk it out with our own feet. We have to tread upon it and explore every nook and cranny just like Abraham did. The second thing I want you to notice in this verse is the connection, once again, between Joshua's ministry and Moses. He says, the land that I've given to you, just as I promised Moses. We're going to see that a major piece of what God is doing in these opening chapters of Joshua is preparing the people for something new, to follow Joshua instead of Moses. And that preparation begins with Joshua. Much like back in the book of Genesis when the promises that are given to Abraham are passed on first to Isaac and then reiterated to Jacob, okay? And so here, it's those promises that Joshua, you will live out, you will go into. Verse 4, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, that's the Mediterranean, towards the going down of the sun shall be your territory, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so also I will be with you. Again, we get a connection between Joshua and Moses. Moses, the servant of God, Joshua, his assistant. Moses, the promises are made, Joshua, the fulfillment. And here, uh, just as I was with Moses, so Joshua, I will also be with you. And he finishes it with, I will not leave you or forsake you. Even verse 6 here in this exhortation, to be strong and courageous, is a connection point. This is the same exhortation that Moses gave Joshua at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, and now God speaks it directly to him. He calls him to not lose heart, to not lose courage, and he says, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Think of the burden on Joshua's shoulders. Think of the reality that sets before him. He's walked with Moses, he's endured the wilderness, he knows the rebelliousness that Israel is capable of. He's aware of the um, task that lays before him in effectively being a general for a people who are not trained soldiers. And bringing out what God has promised. But the emphasis here is on the fact that God is going to do the work. He repeats it again, only be strong, verse 7, and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Another connection, Moses has given the law, now Joshua needs to keep it. In fact, this is one of the first reference places we get to this idea um, of a written-down law. Notice what it says next. It says, Do not turn from it, from the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and will have good success. And so here we see that the the law, the Torah, the five books of Moses have been written down. They've been recorded. They've been handed to Joshua. And God says, this is where your success is found. It's here that you will prosper. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't speak of his ability as a general or of some sort of general strategy. It says that his prospering, his success, will be in a commitment to meditate on God's word in a carefulness to do everything that it says and not to deviate from it. Now, it's worth pointing out here that both this word success and this word prosper do not have economic overtones in the Hebrew. They're broader than this. This is not about Joshua getting rich As we might read the word prosperous, it's about him having success in his general endeavor. But notice this, effectively God says the way that Joshua, and therefore Israel, is going to uh, accomplish this mission, to conquer the land and to receive the promise that they've been given, is found in the keeping of the covenant, in their devotion to the word of God. Now it mentions here he's to meditate on it day and night. And it's worth camping on that word meditate uh, because oftentimes in the modern world when we think of meditation, we draw our understanding from Eastern religions. And so we, we, we see meditation as primarily like transcendental meditation, uh, a form of emptying the mind and removing all thought and being able to set. Uh, separate ourselves from our constantly running brain. But in the Hebrew concept, meditation involves just the opposite, not an emptying, but a filling. Taking this law of God, this word, the Torah, uh, this word of God, and taking parts of it and chewing on it and thinking about it, considering it, rolling it over again and again. It's worth pointing out that... um, what this says here is that it shall not depart from his mouth. Notice it doesn't say shall not depart from your ears. The emphasis isn't put here on uh, Joshua regularly hearing the word of God, nor is the emphasis put on him regularly reading it, but actually reading it aloud, physically embodying the word, shaping the vowels and the consonants with his own mouth. point is here is that he is to be constantly reviewing and speaking God's word. And this idea is not one that is limited to Joshua or his success. When we get to the writings, it opens with the book of Psalms, and Psalm uh, Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the path of sitters, nor sit in the seat of The scornful, but on God's law, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree firmly planted by a stream whose leaves are always green and bears fruit in all seasons. The idea here is that there's a value in the constant reviewing and speaking and meditation on the word of God. That's where success and prosperity is found. Then verse 9, have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Yeah, actually, he has commanded him. He's commanded him twice in the last three verses. There's an emphasis here. To be strong and courageous, verse uh, 9 continues, do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. And then notice why. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The emphasis here on strength and courage is not rooted in Joshua's own ability. It's not, be a man, suck it up, stand up tall. He says, I'm with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. My presence is guaranteed, and so because of that, do not fear. Notice what happens next in verse 10. Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp, and command the people, prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. So he says, be prepared, we're about to cross the Jordan River. Now notice what this is, this is a geological boundary between the promised land and the wilderness. Also recognize how this boundary serves Israel where they are right now as a safety net, as a barrier. Okay, Once they get to the other side, they are officially and totally in enemy territory. And so we really are looking at the beginning of what's going to go on here. And so Moses or Joshua here, he speaks to them and he says, prepare yourselves, get ready. And then notice verse 12. To the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God provided you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan, but all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them. These two and a half tribes had found land uh, through the war they had with King Og and King Sihon. Uh, And they said, you know what? This is good enough for us. We're happy with this land. Let our animals, our livestock, our wives and our children settle here. Moses spoke to God and came back to them and said, that's fine. As long as your men enter in with your brothers to conquer the land as God has called you. And then you can come back to your families and settle on this side. And so Joshua reminds them of this promise. Verse 15 Until the Lord gives rest to your brothers, as he has to you, and they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them, then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you, beyond the Jordan, towards the sunrise. And they answered Joshua All that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey, will obey you. Now, you should probably chuckle when you read that sentence. There's a little bit of irony in the book of Joshua in that there is this need for obedience. But this is the people of Israel we're talking about. And we'll see that overall, God is going to be faithful and Israel is going to conquer, but there's going to be exceptions. There's going to be places. And we should read almost in this a presumptuousness the things are different now. Just as we obeyed Moses, we'll definitely obey you. But we know better. We know uh, how things have been. He says, only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Now, here's what's really interesting. In, in the grammar there, that sentence that begins with only, it always does the same thing in the Hebrew text. It denies what came before it. Consistently. I know we don't pick that up in the English, but when only this is used in this way, it's a contrastive statement. And so here we see again, there's this promise of obedience that we know better about, and even in their words, they say, only may the Lord your God be with you. The author of, of Joshua here is pointing to a real source of their power. Obedience matters. The covenant matters. Joshua's success as a general is going to be in his keeping of the law, but ultimately their victory will be found in the presence of God. Verse 18, whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Now I actually think that's probably a pretty humbling statement at, that, at the end there. God says to Joshua three times, be strong and courageous And then he steps into his official capacity, gives his first command to remind the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the Manassites of their goal. And they speak back to him. Just don't forget to be strong and courageous, okay? You see, Joshua has been selected. He has been chosen. But he is at best a first among equals. He needs the support of others. And so they give this same exhortation. And so we see here Joshua, commissioned in correspondence with the ministry of Moses, finishing what Moses has promised, what Moses has started, building his foundation on the words, Moses has spoken, given the same promises that were supposed to be for Moses' leadership from the people of Israel. And then suddenly the scene in chapter 2 shifts pretty hardcore. Here we have an Israelite in chapter 1 whose success is built on the covenant that God has made with Israel, the promises, unique and specific to Israel, commanded to go in as a general. And side note, don't forget before we read chapter 2, part of that commitment that Israel has made is to carry out this war and wipe out the inhabitants. Because this is not only God's gift to Israel of the promised land, it's also God's judgment on the Canaanites. After years and years of patience, God is finally bringing about what they deserve and he's using Israel as their instrument and so they're told to not leave anyone breathing in the cities and to not take any of the spoil for themselves. And that includes, as we'll see, the city of Jericho and yet what we read about in chapter two is a convert, one of these Canaanites, and not only that but a prostitute. And Rahab is spared. We don't always think about this, but some commentators read this and they go, this is Israel's first mistake. As I told you, there's these places where Israel goes wrong. In chapter 6, the Gibeonites, some of the inhabitants of the land, come up with a ploy to save their own skin. They go, here's what we're going to do. Israel's just ripping through the promised land. They're conquering. Jericho's gone. Ai's gone. Gibeah hears about this because they're just over the next hillside and they come up with this plan. They cover themselves in tattered clothing. They take really stale bread and holy shoes and they come and they limp into the camp and they say, we've come from a long distance. We've heard about your fame and the God who is with you. We want to make an alliance with you. We want to surrender in advance. We want to have a peace treaty, a non-aggression act, right, uh, uh, pact. And Israel's like, oh, you've heard about us. Oh, that's interesting. Well, sure, we'll have a treaty. And then they make this treaty and they come over the hill and here is the city of Gibeah right in the middle of the land, right next to where they were. And God makes them keep those promises. In fact, it's in the context of them keeping those promises because as soon as the other inhabitants of the land hear about this treaty that Gibeah has made, they go, well, that makes Gibeah our enemy. So they attack Gibeah. And the Gibeonites call to Joshua and they go, hey, we made a pact, you're on our team, come and deliver us. And it's in that battle that Joshua calls for the sun to stand still. And God does this miraculous pause the clock we call the universe to bring about victory in that battle. But God makes them keep this covenant. And that one we look at and we go, yeah, that was probably a mistake. And then later on in Israel, we'll read over and over again, uh, in, in their history, especially in the book of Judges. But Judah did not drive out the inhabitants of the land. But Benjamin did not drive out the inhabitants of the land. And it's that context that leads to the unraveling in Israel in the book of Judges. So does that make Rahab their first mistake? Should they have never made a pact here? No, what we deal with is something tremendously different here. And it resolves one of the big tensions one of the big tensions of this whole idea of holy war. Rahab stands in an exception here, but as an exception for a reason. And so let's look at it together in chapter 2, verse 1. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. Okay. Now, and to some degree, history is repeating itself here. They're about to enter into the land, and just like back in Numbers 13, when Moses sends 12 spies out to view the land, Joshua does the same thing. Now, it's worth asking ourselves why. What is going on here? Is he just trying to literally get a lay of the land? We know that Jericho was a fortress city. We'll talk more about it next week. But is he looking for vulnerabilities? Possibly. But it's worth noticing what... The spies actually get out of this. We'll come back to that. But he sends out these two spies, and they went, verse 1, and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. So much for secrecy. They go into uh, what's probably just like an ancient inn where Rahab the prostitute is, and it would have been a place where there was a mingling of both people who were a part of Jericho and people passing through. And as they're talking and they're doing reconnaissance, apparently they talk to the wrong person, and that person goes straight to the king and says, hey, I just met two Israelites who were specifically here to spy out the land. And so, verse 3, the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house for they have come to search out all the land. Okay, do you hear the subtext there? It's subtle, but it's clear. Pick a side, Rahab. If you're going to hide these men, you're our enemy. Verse four, but the woman, woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. So she hides them, and then she covers for them. And what she says is, I had no idea who they were. They already left. If you're going to catch them, they went that way. But in actuality, she had hid them on the roof. So verse 6, she'd brought them up on the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she'd laid in order (coughs) on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan, as far as the fords, And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Okay, so notice a couple of things. First, where do they look for them? Back on the path to the Jordan, right? If it's the Israelites, they know they're on the other side, so they run off to follow them all the way back to the river. And then second, notice that it closes here with the doors of the city being shut. That means that these two spies are now locked in the city. Verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, now notice this, we've just changed the time cycle here. The author uh, here who's recording these things for us, he's already told us that they're hiding under the flax, and now he does a little bit of a flashback. He takes us into a conversation. It's a way of highlighting the conversation that's about to be had by delaying it as long as possible, setting up the tension of the whole story. And then it goes back, and this is the conversation. So before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Now the phrase there, or the the word there for Lord, notice in your Bibles it's probably capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That means that it's this title, Yahweh or Jehovah, she speaks of God by his name, the one that's revealed to Israel, the one that's given to God in, uh, in the law. He says, I know the Lord has given you the land, and the fear of you has fallen upon all of us, that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you've devoted to destruction. And so she says, we've heard about you. Forty years ago, we heard the story of how the Egyptians' army was wiped out in the Red Sea. Just recently, we heard about the destruction of these two Amorite kings, Sihon and Og, um, and how you routed them. And she says, because of that, People are just going to melt away before you here. Verse 11, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord your God, He is God of heaven above and on earth beneath. And so it's not just that she sees the armies being routed ahead of them, but also they've lost heart. All the inhabitants of the land are in fear of Israel. Now, one of the things that's really interesting about Rahab's confession here is it's almost word for word what God promised in the book of Deuteronomy would happen. When she says here that their hearts would melt before them and there was no spirit left, uh, those are the words that God promises, that this is how the battle will go. Uh, Not only that, but notice that expression. She says, the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath that phrase has occurred three times before this, in heaven above and on earth beneath. Two of those times are in the Ten Commandments. Okay? One in the book of Exodus, and again as it's repeated in the book of Deuteronomy. All three of the occasions together focus on God's exclusive sovereignty, what we would call monotheism, that he is the only God. Okay? I want you to notice what this is here. It's a profession of, of faith it's a declaration of allegiance to the God of Israel effectively what we're witnessing here whether it's been in seed form existing before this or it's first takes its form in this articulation is the conversion of this prophet, uh, of this um prostitute Rahab she says I believe that your God is the one true God I believe that he's promised you this land. I believe that you'll take it. Verse 12, now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I've dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, and when the Lord gives us this land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. So, the question again are they wrong here to make this deal with Rahab? Isn't she one of the inhabitants who's devoted to destruction? But this change of allegiance here, this conversion, this proclamation of faith is a game changer. Okay. Consider her in contrast with Joshua. Joshua's history, his heritage, And then suddenly there's this Canaanite woman and she enters into the promises of Israel. In fact, not only that, but she takes such deep root in Israel, she actually ends up marrying a Jewish man and through that Jewish man, who's a descendant of Judah, becomes part of the lineage that flows directly to King David. She's grafted in to the family of Israel to the degree and of course that lineage flows through. And so when Matthew gives the genealogy of Jesus Christ the Messiah he names four women in that list Rahab is one of them a Canaanite Ruth is another one a Moabite okay then there's Bathsheba and there's Tamar these four women are named and Rahab is one of them she's grafted here into the promises of God and I think we get a glimpse here we get a glimpse here of what God actually desires. Go back to the beginning of chapter two. Joshua sends out these spies, but what do they actually find out? What do they actually discover? Two things, okay. One, they hear in the mouth of a Canaanite herself where the heart of the Canaanites are. Basically, she becomes a prophet and speaks and re. Uh, restates, even invigorates them with God's promises. It's similar to what happens in the book of Judges with Gideon. Gideon is a coward. He's a coward through and through. His entire story is one where God condescends to just prove again that he's present. And so God speaks and he says, Gideon, I'm going to make you a judge. I'm going to make you a general. I'm going to use you to deliver the people of Israel. And Gideon does one of these. Who? Who? And he says, no, I'm going to use you, and remember here, this is an angel speaking to Gideon, and visibly so, because there's this thing with a meal that's presented, and it's consumed in the fire. Despite all that, Gideon goes, okay, I'm not sure I believe you, so here's what we're going to do. I want you to make it so this fleece that I'm going to put outside in my tent, make it so it's wet and the ground is dry, and it happens, and he goes, well, let's do the reverse, Right? And it happens. And so God's with Gideon, but he's still not getting the picture. And on the eve of his first battle against the Philistines, God says, Gideon, I want you to go down to the camp. So quietly, in the dark, Gideon sneaks down to the Philistines' army, and he overhears this conversation. And one soldier says to another man last night, I had the weirdest dream. I dreamed that this barley loaf just rolled into camp, and it hit my tent peg, and my entire tent collapsed. And the other one speaks to him, and he goes, oh, well, in the dream, that's that's Gideon, and the people of Israel, they're going to destroy us. And he hears in the mouth of his enemies, right, to reinvigorate him, to encourage him. That's clearly what the spies actually accomplish here. They're given a boost of confidence by God, divinely working. But there is a second thing we see here. I've always found it interesting to take the women of the Old Testament and compare them to the women we encounter in the ministry of Jesus. Okay, And so we look at Hagar, and she's kind of this woman at the well. And when you compare her with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, you have this comparison. It's just, it's just very interesting. But Rahab reminds me of the woman in Samaria. Because it tells us in John chapter 4 that Jesus made an intention to pass through Samaria. It tells us that because that's abnormal for a Jewish rabbi. Samaria was a hole in the donut of Israel. okay, With a people who weren't respected or valued by the Jews, who they distanced themselves from being half-Jews at best. And therefore, therefore, they had no dealings with Samaritan, as it says in John chapter 4. But Jesus was determined to pass through. Why? Because there he meets with this single woman, reveals himself as the Messiah. She responds, and as she goes and tells the men that she knows, and says, I've met this man who's told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? And it leads to this entire city of people responding to Jesus and believing that he's the promised one. But in a sense, he detours for one woman. You remember when Abraham is thinking about his nephew Lot, who's currently living in the city of Sodom, and God reveals to Abraham, he says, I've been hearing this cry coming up from Sodom, this cry of injustice, and I'm going to bring about judgment and destroy it. So, Abram, thinking of his nephew and his nephew's daughters, his nephew's family, he goes, What if you find 50 righteous men? Will you destroy it? And God says, If there's 50 righteous men there, I will not destroy it. Abraham pushes it further. He says, How about 25? How about 15? And finally, how about 10? And God says, if I even find ten, I will not destroy it. Now, he doesn't find ten righteous men. He finds Lot. And Lot, we kind of have to put an asterisk next to his righteousness. But nonetheless, remember what happens in the story? And so judgment is coming and these angels grab Lot and they say, we have to leave right now because we cannot bring destruction on this city while you were present. Here in the midst of Jericho... Hundreds of years later, there's one woman in her family who believes in the God of Israel. That's what the spies come in to see. And because of that, her and her family will be delivered. This is a very early conversion story. Now, we can never look at this story without feeling the tension of this reality. I mean, first off... Not only is this woman a Canaanite, but she's also a prostitute. Prostitution, according to the law, uh, is not to be allowed in Israel. And any sex outside of marriage is punishable by death. But beyond that, how does she go about brokering this deal? She lies. Right? So here comes the king and his soldiers, and she says... Contrary to the truth, I didn't know who they were. And then contrary to the truth, they're no longer here. Go, they went that way, go after them while she's hiding them inside. And so some have taken this an example and spoken of what Plato called the noble lie, or at least a commendable lie. Isn't her faith expressed here in the fact that she preserves human life by lying for them? Is it possible that that we need to have a hierarchy of sin? And so at the cost of human life, we should do the right thing and tell a lie? And usually it's pointed out, after all, Rahab is commended in the New Testament, held up as an example to us. Consider what it says in Hebrews chapter 11. Here in the book of Hebrews, the author He's laying out what we sometimes call the hall of faith. He's looking to all those in Israel's history who believed in the promises of God and holds them up as an example for us. And so look who's in the list in verse 31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she'd given a friendly welcome to the spies. James mentions her as well. Also in the context of faith in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 25, James says this. Chapter 2, verse 25. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? He says here it's not just her profession of faith that validates her faith. It's the fact that she, as Hebrews says received these spies, and sent them out by another way, lowered them down, as we'll see, as a rope in a second. I think it's important to recognize here what she's commended for. She's commended for her faith, for her belief. And the glorious message of the gospel, of the good news, of the grace of God is that he meets us where we're at. And so Rahab is what she is. She's a prostitute when she becomes part of Israel's family. And she does what she does, but the, the Bible nowhere commends this behavior. And there's been three ways to assess this as a church, ethically. Okay. One says, basically, life is messy. There's sins, and then there's worse sins. And so sometimes, because life is so messy, we just have to pick the lesser of two sins. It's just the nature of it. The other, like I said, presents a hierarchy of sin and says, we need to do the right thing. Sometimes there's a discrepancy in value and we need to value the more important one. But the third one, the one that I believe in, uh, is just the fact that people do what they do. And this isn't commended, nor is it necessarily commendable. It's just what happened. The question becomes for me, okay, so could it have gone differently? Was there a way for her to be faithful or obedient? I have no idea. Okay. But I will tell you this, that Proverbs says there's seven things the Lord hates and two on the list are lying. A lying tongue and a false witness both make the list. But nonetheless, God meets us where we're at. And if you look back on your own conversion it was probably messy. If you look on your last week, it was probably messy. The way that salvation comes about for us as Christians because of who God is and what he's done in Jesus Christ doesn't require perfection. It requires belief. And that's what we find in Rahab. She knows who the God of Israel is and that's going to continue to change your life. I mean... We're not told the specific story, but obviously she walks away from prostitution here, settles down, marries a husband, and through that, enters into the lineage of Jesus himself. And so, what I would argue is here with Rahab, we see exactly what we would expect. Another lot. Another place where there is true believers, and because of that, They're spared. As the author of Hebrews put it, she no longer stood with those who were disobedient, but entered into faith in the living God. Verse 15 Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall. So the gate was closed, but her actual house is part of this external fortress wall of the city of Jericho. And she Throws a rope out her window and lowers them outside the city. Verse 16 She had said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. And the men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you've made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who's within you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear." And so they say, okay, we will keep this end of the bargain, but you need to do a few things. One, you need to hang this scarlet cord out your window. Two, you need to take all of this family that you want protected and gather them into this house. The only promise we're making is for this house. No one who's outside of it. Uh, And three, you have to keep a tight lip. You You can't tell anybody about what's going on. And so, verse 21, she said, according to your word... So be it. She sent them away and departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Now, we'll find her on the other side of Jericho. She'll be referenced again with her family. Like I said, later on, we find her in the genealogies um, that lead up to King David and then finally to the Messiah. Um, But we're not actually told how this whole thing works out. And it's super interesting because where is her house? It's in the wall itself. And so, in, uh, in chapter 6, as we look at the fall of Jericho, Israel's going to march around the city, they're going to blow their trumpets, they're going to do all these weird things, and the walls are just going to fall flat. Okay? This doesn't end up being a promise that the people of Israel would spare them once they got into the city. God just miraculously leaves this part of the wall standing. But more than that, there's a detail here that's always struck commentators and bible readers it's this scarlet cord it's this rope hanging out the window and it's red and so many commentators have gone well boy that reminds us of jesus and so just like she is spared by this scarlet cord so we're spared by the blood of jesus christ now side note The only time red and blood are used in a single sentence is in the prophets when it talks about a particular body of water turning red like blood, and it doesn't use the word scarlet. It uses a different word for red. But there is an illusion here that is actually significant and still gets us the same way. Here's what we're going to discover in just a second. We're leading up to the Passover. Passover. That's where Israel is in their calendar. And so when they cross the River Jordan, it's going to be the 10th day of the month, and the first thing they're going to do on the other side is celebrate Passover. When you read this story through the lens of Passover, suddenly it seems very familiar. Remember back in the book of Exodus, God is going to bring this final judgment on the Egyptians. The firstborn son of every household is going to die, except where the Israelites take the blood of a lamb, and put it over the, uh, the doorpost of their house. And what are they told? That everyone who is inside the house will be spared and protected. She's about to have her own Passover experience. You see, her conversion is an example, is an image, it is a picture of what happens with us. And she enters in the same way Israel did being spared the judgment that's brought upon the enemies of God. And so the author of Hebrews and James holds her up and says, this is how we should believe. This is how we should profess the living God. And so she sends the spies away into the hills, not back to the Jordan, because that's where the people who are in hot pursuit of them are. And so she actually sends them west instead of east. Okay? Verse 22, they departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. Pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing, and the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun, told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly, the Lord has given the land into our hands. How do they know that? Out of the mouth of a Canaanite herself. Okay? They go, God is in this, not because they found some flaw in the wall, but because they've heard from the Canaanites themselves the reputation of the God of Israel. Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. And so this report is given and now Joshua begins to prepare to enter into the land. I want to remind you again of this geological significance of the River Jordan. Once they cross, they're not just entering in and attacking and heading back. For the rest of the book of Joshua, they will be living in enemy territory. This will be especially significant next week because what do they do after they cross the Jordan? The first thing they do is they circumcise all the males. That doesn't seem like good military strategy, does it? Okay. We actually don't have to guess about that because we've seen how it went for the city of Shechem. Right back in the book of Genesis, Jacob's sons come up with a ploy to, re, to avenge their sister's rape. And they come to the men of Shechem and they go, we would love to marry you guys. We'd love to make you part of the family, but we have to be circumcised. So if you're going to enter into covenant with us, you have to be circumcised as well. And so the head of the city of Shechem turns to all his men and he goes, look, this is a wealthy, wealthy people. If we marry into this, it's worth it. It's just a little bit of skin. So all the men of the city are circumcised. And the, the uh, book of Genesis tells us on the third day, when the pain of that circumcision was the worst, that's when these two sons of Jacob come in and slaughter the city. And so after, this, after the river, the first thing they do is incapacitate all the adult males. And then they have Passover. Right there in the land, in view of the city of Jericho, this is not going to be like the wars you would expect. This is an intentionally different and distinct thing, and we'll see in every step, God is shaping them to understand that he is in control, that he will give them victory. We'll especially see that with the strategy that's picked for the city of Jericho, But here, the spies have given this report. God's given them into our hands in chapter 3, verse 1. Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it of about 2,000 cubits in length. And so they're communicating to Israel how they're going to cross this river. And they're to watch for the Levites carrying the Ark of the Covenant. It says, you will follow, but at a distance of 2,000 cubits. Okay, that's 1,000 meters. So uh, five city blocks or 10 football fields. a pretty far distance. Continuing here. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you should go, for you have not passed this way before. Now isn't that an interesting sentence? Let me read it again. Do not come near it, the ark, in order that you may know the way you should go, for you have not passed this way before. Stay away from the ark because you've never gone this way before. Seems like a strange thing to say, okay? Part of the reason why it's put this way is because the way that they're going to go is on dry land through the flooded Jordan River, okay? But what it seems to be is an extrapolation on the idea of God's holiness. You see, what we're going to see here is a recreation of what God did at the Red Sea, back in Exodus, Exodus chapter 14, there's a few different reasons given for this whole uh, walking across the Red Sea in dry land. One of them is finally and totally so the Egyptians will know that I'm God. But a second reason is given, so that Israel will know that I'm God and that Moses is my servant. Okay? And so the Jordan parting, as we're about to read, is to reinforce the reality that God is with Israel and that Joshua speaks for God, just like it did for Moses. And so they're going to do something new. They're going to do something miraculous. For f- Verse 5, Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Okay, so now it begins. Verse 7, The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you In the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Okay, you know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of the corresponding ministries of Elijah with a J and Elisha, his student. Okay, and so when Elisha is in the or when Elijah with a J is in his last days, Elisha, his student, can sense something is going on, and so he stays close and he keeps close, and then there's this whole, you know, removal of Elisha with fiery chariot, but what happens? Elijah, or boy, this is hard, Elisha takes the self-same mantle of his master, the cloak that he wore, and he does the same thing with it his teacher had just done, and he goes in the spirit and power of Elijah with a double portion of what his master had, continuing the work We see the same thing here. And so God says, I'm going to show people that just as I was with Moses, so also I'm with you. And he does it in the same way by this parting of the sea. But there are some differences. Look at verse 8. As for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the water, Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Okay. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know. The living God is among you, and that he will, without fail, drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Jebusites. Now, there are longer lists of the inhabitants of the land, but most of the time we find these lists, we find seven of them selected, almost at random, a different seven in different places. But that's because seven is this number in the Hebrew mind that always speaks of completion, and so they can stand in for all the inhabitants of the land. Okay, Um, verse 11, behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. We see the same thing structurally here that we saw in chapter two, which is a delaying. We know, because I've already told you of the miracle that's about to happen, but the author hasn't actually told us that. And so now we see the Ark of the Covenant setting out and the frame pauses and now we're talking about 12 men of Israel being selected for who knows what. And so, what does it say, verse 12? Take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man, and when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. And so, here we have these 12 men. They're introduced, they're selected. And then it tells us what's going to happen with the miracle, verse 14. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan, with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water. And even here, it delays it a little bit, right? Here's where the miracle should be, and then he gives us a parenthetical. Now, just so you know, the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. Remember here, we're in the middle of spring, and it's flood conditions. So the Jordan, depending on where you encounter it during this time, was anywhere from three feet to ten feet wide, okay? But during flood season, we're talking about ten times that, okay, and much deeper and rushing along. And so this drying out of the river that it's about to tell us about is not happening in a season where that sometimes happens, but in the most unlikely season at all. And so he pauses one more time, and then finally in verse 16, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that's beside Zarethan, and those flowing down towards the seed of Ereba, that's the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priest bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until the nation finished passing over the Jordan. So not only does the water stop way up to let them through, but also it says they passed over on dry ground. Moistureless, not muddy like you would expect the bottom of a river, but completely dry. And then get the picture here. So here's the ark and as they step and they first touch the water, it just recedes, and it piles up. They walk out to the middle of the river, just like a crossing guard does at an elementary school, and then they stand right in the middle as all of Israel, two million people, pass by uh, five blocks away, right? Staying, keeping their distance from the ark. Now here, we have a chance to see what's different about this occasion. Do you remember what happens uh, with the Red Sea? Moses tells them something very particular he speaks to the people of Israel and he says stand still and see the salvation of our God and Moses takes this staff this staff that he's been using throughout all of the exodus and he holds it out over the river and the river is parted until it's totally dry and then Israel walks through on dry land but here it's a little bit different the Levites have the ark of the covenant remember that was created after the exodus And so it's this new place. It's this manifestation of God's presence. It's usually in the holy of holies. Here it goes before them. And as soon as the priests touch the river, it opens up. And then they're let through. And so it is a little bit different here. They're active here. We don't get this emphasis of stand still and see the salvation of God. Because what's the salvation of God going to look like in the book of Joshua? It's going to look like active involvement. It's going to look like participation. It's not stop and see what God is going to do for you. It's enter in and do what God is calling you to do and see the wonders he does in your hand. Okay? And so it's a little bit different here. Now, remember, we had those 12 men and we still don't know what they're there for. They were selected, picked out, and then chapter 4, verse 1. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan... The Lord said to Joshua, take 12 men from the people, each tribe a man, and command them saying, take 12 stones from here, out in the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God in the midst of the Jordan, and take each of you up a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel. Now, side note, I want you to notice the size of these stones. Okay, It's got to go up on their shoulder. That's heavy. Okay? So large stones, one per each person, one representing each tribe. Why, verse 6, that, eat, that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be, put, uh, shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. So they're going to make this pile of 12 large stones that came right from the center of the riverbed out on the edge of the river as a constant reminder of what God has done here as a memorial. If you read the Old Testament extensively, you'll see it's chock full of memorials. One of them has to do with when Samuel unites all of Israel for the first time after the days of Judges. You see, the Judges that we encounter in the book of Judges, they don't lead all of Israel, they just one tribe at a time, a battle over here, a battle over there. It's not until Samuel that the nation is unified and they begin to fight the enemies together as the 12 tribes. And the first time they do so, they drive the Philistines back out of the land and he sets up a memorial and he calls it Ebenezer, which means never back again. We've come this far. We won't let the, won't let the line be pushed back again. It's a marker of what God has done, a high watermark of Israel's victory, okay? Now, I chose that one out of many. Jacob has memorials. Abraham has memorials. I chose that one because every once in a while we, put, we sing that hymn that talks about placing our Ebenezer. And I know all of us just think of a Christmas story, right? Um, but the purpose of memorials, as we see here, is for the generations that follow after. It's a reminder of the things that God has done. It's a... As Israel settles into the land, it's a remembrance of how they got into the land by God's miraculous hand. It's a memorial. There was an occasion, gosh, 13, 14 years ago now, uh, when my father had been out of traditional work for about a year. He'd done some consulting work, the bills were being paid, but just nothing had opened up What he does for a living is he manages country clubs. And so there was an opportunity to manage a country club in Wenatchee. If any of you are from Wenatchee, I apologize for this story. It's just what happened. Uh, But uh, he, he had the opportunity. He did the interview. It went really well. He took my mom to visit Wenatchee, and as they drove in, she just began weeping. She couldn't believe that was the place they were going to live. And my dad started to feel really bad about it. And he'd been praying about it, he'd been asking God to lead and to guide him, and then all of a sudden, this club in Everett, here on this side of the mountains, called, and they said, we really want you to interview, we think you're a good fit, and he said, I gotta be honest, I've already taken a job, but if you still want me to come, I will. And so he came, and he interviewed, and on his way home, 45 minutes after the interview, they called him back and they said, we'd like you to turn around and come back so we can talk salary, we want you to take the job. it just was this huge shift. It was a better paying job in a better living place. It's a big part of why I'm here tonight, in fact, because it was me coming to live with them on this side of the mountains that got me over here. But they ended up settling in Lake Stevens. And so every day from the country club, the Everett Golf and Country Club, to home where they found a house to purchase just a few days after he had received this interview, on his commute, he would take the trestle and the sign on the trestle talks about Highway 2 and guess what city it labels, Wenatchee. And I remember him telling me, he said, this every day I drive home is like a memorial to me. It's a reminder of what God did, how he answered my prayers and how he led us to this place. That's what a memorial does. It's a visible, tangible reminder of God's deliverance, of his provision, of his leading. Israel's is to set this up And it's supposed to be just this heap of rocks. It's nothing special. It's not like the war memorials we build today, but just enough so that the children will ask and go, what's all that about? And they have a chance to remind them of the God that they serve, who's given them the land. We saw this extensively in the book of Deuteronomy, but they were given everything they needed not to forget everything to remember that it was God who had given them the land and not their own success not their own prosperity not their own strong arm that had done this they were even taught a song to sing that was basically a song about their own dangerous unfaithfulness that they were to teach to their children so as they were walking the wrong path there would be a verbal reminder in the mouth of their own children all of these things are in place but that's what the memorial is for and so verse 8 The people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. They carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they're there to this day. Now that may mean that they took 12 from the shore and put them back in the bed. And so if you were to walk up to the River Jordan, you could see this pile of rocks right in the middle of, a, of the river as a reminder of the fact that that was at one time dry and they walked across. Uh, this is the only time these other 12 stones are mentioned. We're not told that they did this obediently. We're not told that God commanded them to. So some people actually believe uh, <coughs> that this isn't, <coughs> this isn't another set of stones but a reference to how the 12 stones came to be in the center of the river at all, okay? What they suggest is effectively that these 12 stones were brought into the river for the Levitical priests to stand on in the middle of the river, and then those same stones were carried out. Uh, But they're just trying to reconcile the fact that there's this aside. Uh, I actually think it's a much more compelling memorial if it's this exchange of stones, Um, but nonetheless, this is the only place where they're mentioned, okay, and then notice the last phrase there, and they are there to this day. To what day? Here we see an editorial hand that looks back on this day and says, the stones are still present, okay? Now, maybe these words were written at the very end of Joshua's career, as a reminder that over the forty year fight that happens in Israel, you know, as this new generation raises up, they can go and see the beginning. But it's possible it's later. Some have suggested that the records that make up the book of Joshua are edited together by Samuel, okay, who is the author behind Joshua Judges as well as first and second Samuel. I actually think a pretty good argument can be made there. Uh, as long as you keep in mind the original documents that are clearly here. Okay? When we get to the division of the land in the second half of the book, those are clearly ancient documents that have been uh, wrapped into the book of Joshua. But we'll see that mark quite a few times. They are there to this day. Another place we'll see it is with Rahab, that her family exists in Israel to this day. Okay? But it's worth recognizing what purpose those words serve. To evoke a little pilgrimage, go and see them for yourself. See what God has done. You see, this editorial statement validates the historicity of this story, because when the book was written, you could go and see for yourself. We find a similar remark in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul there is talking about um, the eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. So he mentions the twelve, and he mentions himself, he mentions the brothers of Jesus, and he also mentions 500 who saw him at one time. And then he says this, now some have fallen asleep, but many still Remain to this day. What is he saying to the Corinthian church? There's a large portion of eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus that are still living in Jerusalem. Go and ask them. That's not the type of thing you put in a, in a fake document. It's something you explain away and you go, well, there were witnesses, but they're not around anymore. I can't find their address. I, you know, whatever it is. No, he says, Go. See for yourself. And whoever it is who stands behind the book of Joshua says the same thing. This pile of rocks, this memorial, these stones that were once at the bottom of the Jordan River and are now sitting on dry land, they're there to this day. Go and see them and believe. Verse 10. For the priest bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished and the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua, the people passed over in haste. I've been wondering about that sentence, the people passed over in haste. Is that because of the surreal reality of what they're doing? They just don't want to risk it? Or does it show some sort of zealous ambition for what comes next in life? Are they really in it? Do they see God's presence and his hand, and they're ready for whatever's next. We're not told. Verse eleven. When all the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. About forty thousand ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. Now, side note, that is not a big army. Forty thousand people. Okay. But as we saw in the book of Deuteronomy, it's not the size of the army that counts. In fact, any Israel goes to war, they're supposed to say, how many of you were recently married? How many of you just planted a vineyard? How many of you finally bought your first house? All of you are excused. And then, how many of you were afraid and don't want to fight? You can go too. Okay. The army was not where the power was. And so there's these 40,000, they're ready, verse 14, On that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him just as they stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And so this miraculous happening does what it's supposed to. It helps people to solidify the transition between the ministry of Moses and the ministry of Joshua. Verse 15, the Lord said to Joshua, command the priest bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, come up out of the Jordan. When the priest bearing the ark, the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan and the soles of the priest's feet were lifted on dry ground, the water of the Jordan returned to its place and overflowed all of its banks as before. Do you see that phrasing, the soles of their feet? Have we heard that yet in the book of Joshua? What was Israel told? Every place the sole of your foot treads, I will give you. They're told here that uh, the way the author tells this story is that the river was cut off. Okay? That's significant terminology. It's the terminology of what's going to happen to their enemies. There's a parable in what's going on here. That God is with them and if he can do this with a river then he will give them the land as he promised. Verse 19, the people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month. Now, like I mentioned, that means Passover, which is the 14th day is just around the corner. And interesting note, this is the note when the lamb, the Paschal lamb, the one that would be killed for dinner would be selected, okay? And so in a sense, uh, they're already moving into the preparation of Passover, but here it's tied directly to the crossing of the Jordan River. And even there we have language. Did you notice it in the very beginning of this? That they passed over the Jordan? It's the same words that are used in the great story. There's so many threads here tying everything together. So verse 19 again, on the 10th day of the first month, they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal, And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in the time to come, what do these stones mean? You shall let your children know Israel passed over. There it is again, this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea. There's another connection, which he dried up for us until we passed over so that all the people of the earth. Now pause, notice that. What's been said so far is about Israel and their children, the descendants of Abraham, God's chosen people. And then Joshua broadens the category and he says, This is about all the people of the earth knowing, so that all the people of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. You see, <coughs> God's plan with Israel is specific, it's narrow, it's particular the children of Abraham, his descendants, I will give the promise. They will be a nation unlike any other nation. They will be the apple of my eye. But it's always been particular for a universal purpose. Even when God speaks to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, he says, I'm going to give you descendants and a land and I will bless you. And anyone who blesses you, I will bless And anyone who curses you, I will curse. And then he says, and through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It makes me think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, when referring to the episodes that take place in the book of Numbers says, now these things were written down as examples for us on whom the last days have come. God's plan and his position here is not just about Joshua And the armies of Israel it's not just about giving them promised land it's a promised land where the promises will come to pass and those promises are of universal value because Jesus comes as a Jew as Paul says in Romans chapter 10 for salvation is of the Jews but it's for the world And even here, Joshua is starting to recognize that this is not just the God of Israel, but the God of all the earth, and that what he's doing here, even in this moment in the parting of the Jordan River, is so that all may hear and all may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. I think where we need to finish tonight is we need to recognize in all of the things we face in our life, big and small, The promises that God makes to Joshua here are the same ones that are made to us. God says to Joshua, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And Jesus says to us as he speaks to his disciples right before his ascension, he says, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God says to Joshua, it's my presence, it's my power, it's my promises that will bring about the victory It's God who parts the waters in our life. And it's every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places available in Christ Jesus. But we have the same call as the people in the book of Joshua, in the nation of Israel. God will give us every place where we place our foot. All those spiritual blessings are there for the taking. But we have to cash the check. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, that we would be able to see the great and precious promises you've made available to us in Jesus Christ. Uh, And that as we look at Israel and the fulfillment of the old covenant, that we would understand its relationship to us and the new covenant that was inaugurated in Jesus' shed blood. I pray, Lord, that even though our life looks different and we're not called to war, we're not called uh, to to fight, or we're not called to a physical land that you've given us in promise. You've given us something greater and better, and you'll secure it in our lives in the same way you did then, with your presence through the meditation on your word, through actually walking out the things that you've laid before us. I ask that like the words of Paul, we would work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is you, God, who works in us. We pray this in your name tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.